Hi, welcome to this Physicians Weekly's podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles. I'm your host for this podcast. And today we've got some great interviews as usual. This is Physicians Weekly. Today we speak with Dr. Haley Meek, Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer for New York State and the Center for Disease Control. And she recently presented a report about the impact of the Eastern Canadian wildfires on emergency room visits in New York State for asthma exacerbations. Canada is enduring its worst wildfire season on record with over 166,000 square kilometers or 64,000 square miles on an area equivalent to four Switzerland's of land already burnt. At the time of this recording on the 10th of September, there are still more than 1,000 fires that are active across the country, including some 650, which are deemed out of control. Next, we speak with our regular contributor who goes by the pseudonym Dr. Medlaw. She's a licensed radiologist as well as a medical malpractice lawyer. And this week she lends us her insights on doctor lawyer communications. There have recently been some very prominent news stories about lawyers revealing client communications coming out of the investigations into attempts to interfere with the 2020 election. And since most doctors will take it as a given that what they tell an attorney is shielded from discovery, doctors should probably be worrying a little bit more that the attorneys representing them can actually be forced to reveal communications that they had with them, or can't they? Enjoy listening. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Meek. And could you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what your research interests are? Absolutely. Um, So my name is Dr. Haley Meek. I'm a veterinarian by training. Um, I'm currently an epidemic intelligence service officer for the CDC, which is a a two-year multidisciplinary epidemiology fellowship. I'm part of a really impressive group of colleagues and studying all kinds of different things. I'm a field officer, so I'm assigned to the New York State Department of Health, so I'm working there full-time. Most of my work has actually been in infectious diseases, but really part of being an EIS officer is being ready to to respond to whatever health threats are emerging and urgent. Uh, And so this opportunity came along when we had really unusual wildfire smoke event in New York earlier this summer. And I got to work with a really great team of environmental scientists, asthma experts, to understand a little bit more about the health effects during that event. Terrific. Now, just to go back, so we're all on the same page, could you just describe what the wildfire situation was earlier this year? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, as sort of many people in the United States probably know, wildfires are more associated with the western half of the state. But earlier in the summer, they're actually very large and also unseasonably early wildfires burning in eastern Canada. And in early June, the uh, weather pattern essentially brought a considerable amount of smoke down to, to New York State, and then it affected other states on the east coast as well. And it was really apparent at the time. The, the sky turned red. Uh, you could smell it when you went outside. It was it was. I think really obvious for everyone who experienced it and a little bit alarming because it's something that we're we're not really used to experiencing here. So we wanted to understand more about the health effects and this study particularly focuses on that that first time it happened from June 6th to 8th, but we did actually experience multiple wildfire smoke events from the same fires since that time. 
Great. And so if you talk about the study, can you just give me the overview of what was the point of the study? What were you guys trying to achieve? What was that unmet need? Yeah, absolutely. So really, this particular study for us, our goal was to really get a snapshot of this event and understand the really immediate health effects. So we focused just on that that first event, which was happened from June 6th to 8th. And for our outcome, we looked at emergency visits associated with asthma. And we looked at that because there are there are numerous health outcomes associated with exposure to wildfire smoke. Asthma is one where we see the effects are very immediate and they're generally very apparent. So our goal here was to get sort of the snapshot out quickly so that we could share data quickly so that the public could understand sort of the, the really immediate outcomes. But there's certainly more work to do to sort of get a more comprehensive understanding of all of those outcomes. Uh, so what we did is we looked at the, the study period from June 1st to June 14th of 2023 with that wildfire smoke event really happening from June 6th to June 8th. And the New York state is divided up into eight air quality regions. So we looked at air monitor data from one monitor in each of those regions. And the, the specific pollutant that we were looking at is particulate matter with aerodynamic diameter less than two and a half microns, which is a mouthful. So we refer to it as PM 2.5. So that was really our exposure. And then our outcome was emergency department visits associated with asthma. So we can we can pull that data from the New York State Department of Health electronic syndromic surveillance system. This is a system that looks at ED visits in 134 out of 134 New York State emergency departments. So that's outside of New York City. Uh, the New York St City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene has its, its own syndromic surveillance system. So our study was New York State minus New York City. And so tell me some of your results. A daily mean of asthma emergency department visits for the period of June 1st to 5th, where air quality was normal. And then we compared them to the emergency department visits for asthma on June 7th, which was the day of peak wildfire smoke exposure. Um, and across the state, we found that those asthma ED visits increased by 82%. Um, so that, that baseline was around 81 daily visits and it increased to 147 visits. That's striking. It, it was. It was very striking. And we found that those increases were even larger in specific regions. Those visits actually more than doubled for two of our regions, as high as a, an 180% increase. And did they go back down immediately following those dates? Statewide, they did. It depends a little bit on the region. For one region, we actually saw the, the peak emergency department visits were two days after the peak wildfire smoke exposure, which we do see sometimes in previous wildfire smoke data that there's actually a lag in health effects, but they did come down to baseline after the, the event was over. Right. And one of the novelties of this particular study is that these patients that are predisposed to asthma haven't been exposed frequently to wildfire previously. Can you extrapolate any of the data from West Coast fire exposure, smoke exposure uh, data? Or is this something that you can say we can expect a doubling in patients who are predisposed? So 
I think, you know, this study really was meant to be a snapshot in time, and there's a a lot of work left to do to understand whether this is going to be a typical finding or not. There's a lot of factors at play aside from sort of the biological baseline exposure to wildfire smoke. There's also, you know, the sort of behavioral aspects of the fact that it was just so new and alarming that could have sent more people to the emergency department. We definitely have plans to look at, at the data across the summer because we had multiple additional wildfire smoke events following this first one. And I think that will help us understand a little bit more what we can expect should this become a regular occurrence going forward. Right. And can this lead to recommendations about uh, patients being exposed, staying indoors, staying in more controlled environments, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, physicians can be a huge part of this. And it's, it's something that we all have to start thinking about a little bit more, even in places where we didn't think we had to think about wildfire smoke before. But patients can look up the air quality at airnow.gov, and that will give them the current air quality index for their area. And this gets divided out into categories based on, you know, as as the index gets higher, essentially air quality is worse. And so depending on where the index falls, for example, unhealthy for sensitive groups or unhealthy for all people or very unhealthy, um, which were the levels that we were seeing during this event, there are various recommendations. Essentially, as air quality gets poorer, We recommend that people try to spend more time inside, and when they're inside, they should be closing windows, closing doors, running air conditioning if they have it, ideally running an air filter if they can, um, if that's something that's accessible to them. Um, When they do need to spend time outside, um, reducing that time outside as much as possible and avoiding strenuous activity. And they can also wear an N95 mask that's well fitted to their face that can help as well. And then specifically, when we're talking about people with a history of respiratory disease and asthma, making sure that they have any medications that they use for acute control of their asthma on hand. Um, Again, this is something that clinicians can be talking with their patients about, especially you know, springtime, we're going into summer, that's when we think that we might be seeing more wildfire smoke, having those conversations early so that patients know what to do to protect themselves can be really key. Right. And do you work with any of the patient advocacy groups for asthma patients to help disseminate this evidence-based medicine? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely something that we're going to be doing more and more going forward, especially as we as a Department of Health figure out how to uh, deal with this new emerging threat. Right. So what are some of the next steps with regard to this data set? Yeah. So one group that we did, you know, we we didn't have a chance to do a whole lot of stratification or looking at specific groups. One specific group that we uh, did look at was we, we divided our results into age groups. And we saw that the largest increase was in our 10 to 29 year olds. And we actually saw a 198% increase in asthma ED visits in that group. And so that's really important for us to know that we need to be paying special attention to those younger populations when we're seeing these events. But there's there's a lot more <laughs> that we can look at. 
as I mentioned, expanding our timeline. So we're looking at the whole summer in addition to just this one event. We also want to look at other health outcomes. There's evidence that exposure to wildfire smoke can also exacerbate cardiovascular conditions and lead to increases in uh, heart attacks and stroke. So that's something that we'll be looking a little bit more closely to understand better whether we saw those effects here in New York. Also understanding if there are other groups that are being disproportionately affected by these events. So looking at our race and ethnicity data and looking at occupational data because we often see that uh, black populations are most affected by wildfire smoke and other pollutants um, and also that those that have occupations that require them to be outside so they don't have the option to bring themselves inside and protect themselves from the smoke. Um, so those are all things we'll be looking a little bit more closely at. And we're also exploring using methods that will give us a little bit more specific look at specifically wildfire smoke exposure, as opposed to this sort of larger category of PM 2.5. Right, that's really interesting. So do you have any messages, take-home messages you'd like to share with physicians about this research and the value it might bring into daily practice? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's just, you know, if you're hearing this message and you think this doesn't apply to me because there isn't wildfire smoke in my area, I think that's what everyone in New York probably would have said before this summer. Um, so we know that wildfires are becoming more frequent. They're becoming larger. They're burning hotter. Uh, when they burn hotter, the smoke can actually travel farther. So even if you haven't experienced wildfire smoke in your area, it's possible that you could in the future. And so it's important to know the guidelines that you're, you can pass on to your patients to help them be best prepared. And it's also important to know that there are certain groups that are more sensitive, um, including younger people, including people who have jobs that make them work outside. And so making sure to pay particular attention to those patients who might be most at risk during a wildfire smoke event uh, is really key. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time and insights here, so appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thanks for your interest. Physicians Weekly is back again with our regular contributor, Dr. Medlaw, a board-certified radiologist and medical malpractice attorney, this time to discuss communications with lawyers. Dr. Medlaw, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. There have recently been some very prominent news stories about lawyers revealing client communications coming out of the investigations into attempts to interfere with the 2020 election. Since most doctors will take it as a given that what they tell an attorney is shielded from discovery, should doctors be worrying that the attorneys representing them in a malpractice action or a peer review or a medical board case can be forced to reveal communications that they had with them? Well, those cases stem from two very specific exceptions. Either the communication was not actually for legal advice or it came under what's called the crime fraud exception, in which the lawyer was an actual participant in the illegal conduct. However, this is still a really good point to look at the general principles that uh, will apply uh, when knowing that what you tell your lawyer is actually safe from disclosure. So let me first ask if this is confidentiality that we are talking about here. Well, confidentiality is the baseline. You know, like doctors with patients, lawyers are prohibited by statutes and by ethics from revealing any private material about their clients. 
Here, though, we're talking about two separate doctrines. One is called work product, and the other is called attorney-client privilege. What is work product? Uh, Work product is the work that the lawyer does on the case, uh, what the doctrine formally calls in expectation of litigation or in preparation for trial, so basically at any point. Uh, It's the lawyer's own notes on their ideas and their strategy and their research. Uh, It was created as a policy to encourage lawyers to keep good records, which is good for clients, instead of, you know, just trying to keep it in their heads because they were afraid that their adversary would swoop in and get free access to all their plans. Would it include communications with the client? That would actually come under attorney-client privilege, which we'll talk about next. But it would cover the lawyer's own thoughts about those communications and how to deal with them. So it would include that material indirectly. In a medical malpractice case, would it include the lawyer's communication with experts? Absolutely. So that's very important because you don't want your opponent getting a freebie expert opinion through your notes. So who has to bring this up if a demand is made for disclosure? The lawyer. This shield belongs to the lawyer. The lawyer has to raise it, and the client cannot waive it. Could the other side ever get this information? Mm, Very, very limited. You know, if the opponent really wants the material, they'd have to get a court order. They'd have to show that it's relevant and non-privileged, because you can't break privilege, uh, that cannot otherwise be obtained, but which is absolutely critical to their case. The standard is so high that... The shield is functionally a complete one. So let's talk about attorney-client privilege now. Uh, Sure. This is the big one. Uh, This was created uh, to favor open and honest discussion between someone seeking legal help and their lawyer. Uh, It bars the lawyer or their agent, that's someone working with them, uh, from testifying about communications with the client in the case. And to qualify as presumptively privileged... Uh, you know, because this will only come up, there's a fight about the privilege. The communication must meet three criteria. One, it occurred within the attorney-client relationship. Two, it was in private. And three, it was for the purpose of obtaining legal services. That sounds a lot like doctor-patient privilege. It does, because it's just like it. <laughs> the thing to understand about declaring any communication, you know, doctor to patient, clergy to penitent, spouse to spouse, attorney to client, privileged, is that we're pulling those communications out of being used as evidence. You know, evidence is the search for truth. It should be what we care about. But we're saying that even if these communications are just chock full of critical information, that It's a matter of public policy that some relationships are just so grounded in trust and confidence that to function, they have to be protected from intrusion. Uh, The flip side of that, though, is that we keep that exclusion from discoverability very restricted. How does that play out? Well, let's start with whether the relationship exists. Uh, An express contract like a signed retainer agreement is not necessary to form an attorney-client relationship. It can be implied from the conduct of the parties. However, and this will also be familiar uh, from the doctor-patient relationship, the claimed client must have a reasonable belief that the relationship exists. So if a judge is analyzing whether the privilege applies, they would look at issues like the circumstances and conduct of the conversation, like the lawyer offering specific advice, 
whether there was a fee paid or whether there was an agreement to pay a fee, or maybe if the lawyer was participating in a legal insurance program that assigns them to clients. How about if the lawyer is supplied by an employer? Oh, that is a great question. And it is very important for employed doctors to keep that in mind. A doctor who gets legal advice from hospitals or groups lawyers may think they're entitled to privilege uh, when the reality is that that lawyer only works for their employer. And so what they said to the lawyer is unprivileged and uh, eh, it's fair game. Uh, a doctor should assume that no lawyer except one that they personally hire or is provided to them individually is their lawyer for the purpose of the privilege. Now, you may say, but what about in the insurance setting? And yeah, in a malpractice case, you have to understand there is a carve out because the information that you give to your lawyer who has been provided by your carrier will be available to the insurer and its case manager for determining how to deal with the case. However, it will be privileged as against the other side. So getting back to the elements that have to be met, how about the need for the communication to be private? Well, the presence of a third party other than an employee of the lawyer who is assisting them, you know, like having their paralegal in the room, it breaks the privilege, just as an outsider in the consulting room breaks the privilege between a doctor and a patient. Does this apply to experts? Well, again, because privileges restrict the search for truth, the scope of the agency exception is very limited. Uh, so a secretary or paralegal on the case would be treated as basically an extension of the lawyer and would be covered, just as a nurse or a mid-level working with a doctor would be. But if the medical expert who was hired for their opinion, but is not really an employee of the lawyer, is in on the discussions, then... They're just a garden variety third person and their presence would defeat the privilege. Now, of course, the expert is under their own obligation to the lawyer who hired them to keep their, their mouth shut about what they know about the case. What they've been told is confidential, but they don't have any derivative privilege. How about the third issue, the topic being actual legal advice? Well, just as the privilege between a doctor and a patient is limited to communications about diagnosis and treatment, a lawyer has to be opining on a legal matter for privilege to attach. So let me give you an example. Suppose that a doctor wants to buy a building uh, to develop for medical office rentals and they hire a lawyer. And in the course of that representation for the purchase, the lawyer also advises on setting up an LLC for that purpose. And she also does a review of fair market rents in the area. So the work on the contract itself for sale and the advice on the LLC, those are subject to privilege because the lawyer is acting as a lawyer. But her comments on rental pricing, which are general knowledge and not specifically legal, that would not be. Who holds this privilege? Well, this is the opposite of work product. Here, since it is the confidentiality of the client, the client holds the privilege and the lawyer cannot waive it. Let's say that the privilege does apply. Can it shield everything about the interaction between the client and the lawyer, basically acting as a black box? No. Um, things like the existence or length of the relationship, the general nature of the services performed by the lawyer or the terms and conditions under which the lawyer was retained or the lawyer's fee, those are discoverable. 
the circumstances surrounding a communication between an attorney and their client, like the date of the communication, who was copied on it, or who participated in the meeting, uh, and, you know, the records of, of those uh, uh, sort of ministerial issues, those are not privileged. Uh, finally, this is a big one. If information can be gathered from another source, then the underlying information itself is not privileged. So how about exceptions to privilege? Well, there are four main ones. Uh, privilege can be breached in an inheritance case when there's a conflict between the heirs and people who are, shall we say, other claimants who want a piece of the estate. Uh, this is something a doctor should keep in mind when setting up their own estate. Uh, privilege can be breached when shareholders are suing a corporation over what they claim is a violation of its duty to them. Uh, this could be an issue for uh, doctors who are shareholders in a medical entity and who are, they're suing it. Uh, if two parties are represented by the same attorney in a single legal matter, they can't assert the privilege against each other if they're subsequently suing each other about the same matter later. So doctors who want to share an attorney in a medical malpractice or business matter should keep that in mind. And there's the one in the news, the crime fraud exception. And that's, that's the big one. The privilege never attaches in the first place if a client seeks advice from an attorney to assist with furtherance or concealment of a crime or fraud. Or the lawyer themselves hops in and becomes a participant in the illegality, basically, you know, like Tom Hagen being Don Corleone's consigliere. But what if the client, say a doctor who is being charged with insurance fraud, needs advice on their defense? There is no bar to seeking legal advice for a defense, so long as any advice is solely about that defense and not about hiding the fraud or being fraudulent in the future. So that discussion, including what the doctor revealed about their own actions, that's privileged. How will a privilege claim be evaluated? Well, I've actually seen that in the election interference in January 6th cases. The lawyer moves on behalf of their client to assert the privilege, and a judge then reviews the materials to see if they meet the criteria. In a large case, a judge may be appointed as a special master to review a vast number of documents and separate them into what is privileged and what is not. We saw that in a case about the former president. But in a case that a doctor would likely to be involved in, it'll be either the magistrate judge covering initial procedures or the trial judge once the case has started, who would be the reviewer. So, can you summarize this? Sure. A doctor can significantly rely on what they tell their lawyer being shielded but they should keep the limits on that in mind before they communicate with that advocate. As always, thank you, Dr. Medlaw, for joining us. And as always, it was great to have the opportunity to talk about this important topic. That's all the time we have for this week's podcast, but thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you found this an important topic to address. Please let us know if you have feedback. We're always open to it, and we're happy to take any requests or suggestions into account. All right, stay safe and stay healthy and talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Physicians Weekly. Physicians Weekly offers in-depth interviews with the most highly respected experts in the medical community. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 